All right, you can take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Good, let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, just thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to uh, just have your word examine us, Lord, examine our hearts. Lord, as, as we come to your word, it's never, uh, it's, it's your word searching us, Lord. And we just invite that this morning. Would you search our hearts, God? Lord, would you see, David said, would you see if there's any wicked thing in me, Lord, and would you purge it and cleanse it out? Lord, would you just give us the diagnosis, show us our need, Lord, and lead us right straight to you today? And so, God, we, we, uh, we just need you. As we, as we come, Lord, we need your spirit to teach us. And so, Holy Spirit, just have your way. Prick each one of us, Lord, right, right where we need it. I pray um, that you would speak to us. And so, God, we just ask your blessing upon this time, your spirit's leading upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So Romans chapter 3, as we, as we come here and we begin to dive into this text, uh, Paul is going to stay right on this same theme that we've been on in the first two chapters of Romans. And he's going to demonstrate, just continue to demonstrate everyone's need for grace, their need for uh, salvation in Jesus. You remember in Romans chapter 1, that Paul demonstrated the need of those who are not right with God, those that are not walking with him. They need the gospel. They need the experience of salvation because apart from, in, uh, apart from Jesus intervening in their lives, uh, as they've failed, Paul said, to glorify God and to give thanks to him with their lives, they become objects of his wrath, which simply means this, that he leaves them to the experiences and the consequences of sin against him. And then as we came to chapter 2, we saw the pendulum swing and Paul demonstrated the need of religious people. Not, not now the, the unsaved, but now folks that maybe are even in the kingdom, religious folks. And their experience, uh, their need for experience of God's grace because they can begin to slide into this thinking and this belief that, that we're good, that somehow we're deserving of salvation and, and this self-righteousness can settle into the heart. And, and Paul just demonstrated to us that, that self-righteousness and that kind of hypocritical character leads us to the place where we, where we judge others. And it demonstrates contempt towards the character of Jesus and the work of the cross as he patiently is leading people towards himself. And so, so Paul grabs people from the other end of the spectrum. In chapter 1, he directs his kind of his diagnosis towards the Gentile. And in chapter 2, he directs his diagnosis towards the Jews. And in doing so, he's caught every single one of us in the conversation so far. That's what I love about Romans 1 and 2. And now it's interesting, as he's, as he's talking, we know this, and I've been telling you this, is that as, as he's writing to the Roman church, there is an issue between the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's infiltrated the church, and there's hostility towards one another in this church. And, you know, one of the things that Paul is, is helping us see here is that it's, it's uh, important to recognize that there is a distinction between Gentile and Jew. And that was at the heart of some of the issues that were going on in the Roman church. And we know this from the scriptures, that God's made a distinction between Gentiles and Jews. That, that distinction is clear from the, from the pages of a Bible, from the stories that we read. You know about Abraham and his descendants and the history of Israel and the Jewish people right from the time of Abraham even till modern day. There is a distinction that exists between, between Jew and non-Jew. To Abraham and his descendants the Lord said, I will bless you and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. 
But as Paul is leading us down this rabbit trail, there is an area he's trying to, to help us see. There is an area where there is no distinction. And the distinction is erased in the way that God deals with the sin of each. Gentile or Jew, the unrighteous Gentile will face punishment for their sin. That's what Paul told us in Romans chapter 1. In chapter 2, he told us this, that, that the self-righteous Jew will face God's judgment because of hypocrisy. And so chapter 2 ended with Paul explaining to us, or explaining to the Jews, writing to the Jewish Christians in Rome, that, that being part of the Jewish nation, having the commandments, and having the covenant of circumcision will not save you. And we made an application for ourselves as well. We said this, that we're not justified by information and we're not saved by symbols. You remember that? Knowledge, we said, of God's word is meaningless unless it's accompanied by transformation and obedience. And likewise, outward expression of things like baptism and the Lord's Supper are meaningless if it's not accompanied with an inward reality and experience of Jesus Christ. And so with the content of chapter 1 and 2 in mind, it would be kind of natural that, that the Jewish mind, someone who's grown up with the word of God and grown up with the symbols of their covenant, would just begin to object against what Paul was saying. What are you talking about, Paul? And so chapter 3 begins with, with Paul addressing those objections. These are the, I call them the objections of the self-righteous. And there's four of them here that we're going to see. And so he says this in verse 1. What then advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Remember, he's, he's dissected this. He, he said, you, you have the word and you ha- you, your symbols and your knowledge don't matter if God doesn't have your heart. And so the question is, well then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And the question really is this, wait a minute God, wait a minute, if if God judges the unrighteous Gentile and he judges the self-righteous Jew, then what was ever the advantage of being a Jew? What was the point of circumcision? Well Paul says this in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul says this, even though you don't understand the law, it was given to you to show you your your sin and to reveal your need for Jesus Christ and the fact still remains that you have the law, you have the word of God. And because you have the word of God, you're greatly blessed, Paul's saying. That's an advantage, a great advantage towards being right with God, right? To have his word. Massive advantage. Then the second objection to Paul leveling the playing field between Gentile and Jews in verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? What are they asking? Will God forsake his promise to the Jewish people? The second question is, you know, since some Israelites, since some Jews proved to be unfaithful, will God forsake his promises to bless them? And the answer is, no. No, Paul says. You know, the truth is there's always people who will reject the revelation of God. The revelation of himself. This is not new. It's not a new problem. And it serves to us as a warning that that we should test ourselves, you know, We should test ourselves and say, am I living up to the faith that God has called me to? Am I living up to the faith God has called me to? I mean, I would say to you, let God prove his faithfulness in your life. And know this, the gospel has not failed if someone chooses not to believe. That doesn't mean the gospel's failed. The important thing is this, that you and I don't want to be that person who's unbelieving. That's the important thing because God does not forsake his promises. That's what what Paul is telling us here. Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? No, by no means, verse four. By no means let God be true and everyone, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, 
that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You know, many times, I, I know this has happened to you too, many times I've spoken with someone and they tell me this, they say, you know, I've read the whole Bible. I sat down and I read the whole Bible and then they give you some sort of statement that goes along these lines, you know, nothing happened. You know, I didn't see anything in there. I didn't get anything out of it. Or someone says, you know, I don't come to church. I don't come to church because I don't get anything out of coming and meeting with those people. I don't get anything out of that preacher. Or someone says, I prayed and nothing happened. God didn't do anything. And it's like they're suggesting this. It's like they're suggesting, I'm doing everything the Bible says I should do. And, and it's not working. But truthfully, when someone says that, the reality is this. This is what Paul's saying. They're lying. He says this, let God be true and every man a liar. And the Lord says, I mean, the reality is this, is that the Lord says he's, he's attached a blessing to the reading of his word. The Lord says that there's encouragement that happens when his people come together. The Lord says that he hears our prayers. God, God has promised, those who seek me will find me. You know, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. So, you know, when, you're, when someone is apt to making such a, a statement or you hear someone make such a statement, know this, someone's lying in the whole conversation. And it's not the big man upstairs. It's not God. God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God doesn't forsake his word. Then there's another objection in, in verse 5. It says this. Uh, Paul asks this question, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. The third objection, uh, this third question that Paul asks, this question of the self-righteous, basically, you know, the self-righteous person, he says, suggests to themselves that, that God will be merciful because, God will be merciful on me because my failings have really served to magnify his righteousness. And Paul's answer is in verse six. He says this, no way, man. By no means, by no means is that true. For then how could God judge the world? But no, he says, by no means. God will not show favoritism to such people. Even if their unrighteousness contrasts his righteousness, even if their unrighteousness some, in some way in the end glorifies the righteousness of God, God won't justify that person. If God did so, he'd be proving himself to be partial. We talked a little bit about the non-partiality of God last week. He would be showing favoritism. And Paul says this, God does not play favorites. You know, somehow this idea of God and his favoritism and being partial seems to get harder to understand the longer you serve the Lord. It really, I think, can set into the hearts of believers. I think it's because, you know, as you serve the Lord and you begin to experience the true reality of, of blessing and his grace in your life, you begin to expect it. And, and you should. You should expect God's grace and blessing upon your life. And, and as you experience his, his grace, even when you mess up, you can begin to, in your heart and in your mind, just take advantage of God's grace kindness towards you. Oh, well, you know, let this one go. I'll lean on grace here. And you mess up and you begin to take advantage of the Lord's kindness. And, and the mistake is, is that you begin to think that there are special rules surrounding you in regards to the kingdom of God. But Paul's telling us this, if God played favorites, he'd be proving himself to be an unjust judge. A, a, a just judge cannot be partial. He can't pick favorites. 
He has to abide by the, the law. And if the Lord picked favorites and judged you and I on a curve, he, he wouldn't be qualified to sit as the judge over all mankind. And so Paul's saying is, no, no. God is not going to forsake his judgment. And then there's a fourth objection. It's kind of similar. It's in verse 7 and 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slander, slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So this objection, this kind of question that Paul's kind of rhetorically asking, suggests that maybe, maybe God is going to overlook falsehood in the end. You know, if in the end he's glorified anyways, then, then maybe my falsehood just magnifies his glory. It magnif I, I'm false and he's true, and so when I'm false, it magnifies the truth that's in him. Here's an example, you know, let's say I, I, I lie to you. And it's like saying, well, your, your lie just proves that only God is truthful. So really, by lying, I helped glorify God. That's like the argument that he's throwing here. So, so in the end, shouldn't God just overlook that? You know, the classic story is the one of Rahab. Remember that story? In Jericho, the spies come into the city of Jericho and they, they, they check it all out and then they uh, hide at Rahab's house and, and when the soldiers come looking for those spies, Rahab lies to them and she says, I don't know where they are. Meanwhile, they're hiding in her house and the, the guys take off. You know, I've actually heard that, I've been told this, that the, that the Jehovah Witnesses will justify lying to people when they're evangelizing for the Watchtower Society. It's part of their doctrine that they justify their lying because of the story of Rahab. But what Paul is telling us is this, is that God doesn't overlook that stuff. God doesn't overlook sin. And, and Paul says, you know, the person who even suggests that he does that Man, the condemnation they receive is due them for suggesting such a thing. David Guzik said this, I like this. He said, twisting the glorious free gift of God in Jesus into a supposed license to sin is perhaps the summit of man's depravity. It takes the beautiful gift of God and perverts it and mocks it. This twisting is so sinful that Paul saves it for last because it's beyond the depravity of the pagan beyond the hypocrisy of the moralist and beyond the false confidence of the Jew. There's nothing worse than using grace as a license for such things. And self-righteous people still raise these same objections that Paul's talking about here. Some assume because God has blessed them, because God has blessed me here, he will not condemn me. Some believe the character of God somehow prohibits him from condemning them. Well, God's love. I mean, he's not going to do that to me. Others think that, that even though they have sinned, God will be merciful to them and he will not condemn them. Or, or others think that because God, because in everything God is somehow glorified anyways that somehow he would be unjust to condemn them. And what Paul is telling us here is this. That God is not going to forsake himself. So in verse 9. Says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now he told us, there's some advantages to being Jewish. But he said, there's a mistake that you can make. There's a mistake to think that you are better off. You know, if I was to summarize the, the, the whole human condition, according to, you know, just like Romans 1, 1, all the way through to where, where we're at in this text, you know, I think we could say this. That human beings, Paul's just been exposing this. We're, we're like experts at blowing smoke. 
smoke screen. Can't really see me. I'm going to just set that smoke screen. And in Romans 1 and 2 and now chapter 3, Paul's just clearing through the smoke of self-deception. And it creeps into our hearts in the church too. Chapter 1 revealed that those who fail to glorify God are condemned. Their indictment comes, he said, from the witness of creation as to the eternal power and the eternal power and the divine nature of God. In chapter 2, he told us the self-righteous person is a hypocrite and is indicted by their own conscience. As he judges others, he just demonstrates the law of God is written on his own heart. And now here he tells us the Jew is indicted by the very word of God that's been given to him. And so thus far, you know, I would say this, the, the point of Romans is this up, to this, up to this point, is revealing to us that God has spoken very clearly to every generation, to every person, and every generation and every person before him is without excuse. And Paul begins to just sum up this whole argument here in this next little section. And what he's going to do is he's just going to grab scriptural statements about mankind from all over the place. He's going to go to Psalms. He's going to go to Ecclesiastes. He's going to go to Isaiah. He's going to go to Proverbs. And he's just going to say, look at what the scripture says about mankind. Let's check it out. Read with me in uh, verse uh, 10 through 18. As it is written, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow, Paul. Doesn't that feel good, eh? You know, if you were comfortable before, it's like, thanks a lot, Paul. Not feeling so comfortable anymore. Not very nice. Look again at verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Th those, those passages from the Old Testament, all the different spots that he's quoting, those just give a diagnosis of the human condition. That it's bleak. It's discouraging. When you read that, man, that's all like, yeah, woohoo. <laughs> I feel so good about myself. I mean, it's discouraging to truly consider the condition of all mankind when left to himself. It's without hope. You know, without expectation of success or, or even a, a improvement. Paul's saying this all are sinners without exception. And you know, this is why we, 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 set our, we set ourselves up for failure so often. You know, one of the ways we set ourselves up for failure is when we put our, our hope in people. You know, in a human being. We need to remember where, where our hope is supposed to be. I love my kids, but my kids aren't my hope. I love my church, but my church isn't my hope. You know, I love my wife, but my wife isn't my hope. Or you might say your husband, or maybe you love your pastor, but your pastor's not your hope. Just get that clear here this morning. You'll be real trouble. You know, when you set your hope on, on, on some sort of healthy expectation on any of those relationships, man, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and disillusionment. Put your hope in God. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're experiencing some sort of disillusionment or disappointment with a person, then I would say this, recognize something got out of order. Something in your life got out of order if people had just disappointed you. 
Your hope was where it never should have been. Put your hope in Jesus Christ. And so these passages that Paul quotes from, from around the Old Testament, they, they tell us the truth about the condition of mankind. And, and when we look at one another through, or just look at the world through, you know, the lens of Scripture, the proper lens of Scripture, we, you know, I would say this. Rather than being surprised when someone lets you down, you should actually be surprised when they do something that's like awesome. It's like, well, of course they let me down. They're human beings. They're supposed to let me down. But then when they do something awesome, it should be like, wow, sweet, man. Let's celebrate that. God did that in their life. That's like awesome that that was in there to come outside of them. You should be amazed when someone does something good because God's diagnosis of the human condition is truly one of depravity. Put your hope in God. You know, the corruption of humanity is so bad that it's even hard for us to understand. Now, when I'm saying us, I'm talking about us Christians, man. Us ones who's like sitting in the pews. It's like hard for us to understand the depravity of man and we have the word of God. We have the word of God and we don't recognize how corrupt sin has made the human condition. The human will, your will, Paul's telling us here, it's, it's evil and we'll never truly comprehend the depravity and the marks sin has left on our lives. And so we have to humble ourselves before Jesus. Crucify spiritual self-sufficiency and, and put our hope in, in God's grace. But Paul says something incredible here as he's quoting. He says this, he says there's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. No one does good. Luther said this. We're, uh, we're, in the, uh, we're like at the 500th year of the Reformation. We're going to show, uh, just so you know, on uh, October 29th at 7 o'clock here, we're going to show, it's a Sunday night, a great documentary. It's almost two hours long that PBS has just done. It's called Martin Luther, The Idea That Changed the World. It's really well done. And it's, it's a... It's a cool thing. And so 500 years ago, Luther wrote this in his commentary on Romans. He said this. About no one understanding, no one seeking God. No one doing good. He said that is true. Both of those that do not care at all for God. And of those who seek after him. Or rather imagine themselves to seek after God. They do not seek after God as he desires to be found as he desires to be sought and found, namely, not by human wisdom and seeking, but by faith and humility. You know, this is really where the philosophies of humanism and Christianity stand in utter opposition to one another. You know, in humanism, in humanistic thinking, you say this, you say, people are basically good and sometimes they do bad stuff. Sometimes they do bad things. But Christianity is actually completely the opposite. It's the, it's the argument from the other way, the other side, totally. Christianity says this, the word of God says this, that, that human nature is sinful. That it's bad. But in the midst of being sinful and bad, sometimes people do good things. You get it? It's important that as Christians, we ask ourselves, whose view of human nature do we have? Do we have God's view of human nature or have we adopted humanistic thinking? It's a good question. A good question is this, actually. What did Jesus think about human nature? What did Jesus say about human nature? You know, the Bible tells us the gospel, actually, the gospels make it really clear Jesus' view of human nature, and it, it's entirely clear. So what was his view? Calvin, I'm gonna get you to throw that up on the screen. We're gonna walk through some passages. It says this. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. You know, underline it. He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew, for he himself knew what was in a man. That's pretty powerful. You know, 
if you've been brought up with this nice little view of Jesus and what Jesus thinks about, you know, people, this nice view that he trusted people and he thought the best about people, you know, I, I would encourage you to consider this scripture. Let's look at another example of Jesus and his thoughts about human nature. Luke eleven twenty nine. 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Look at what he called this generation. What did he say? Evil. So just in case that's not registering for you, <laughs> just in case your heart is seeking to lie to you, because it will, just in case your heart is seeking to, to lie to you in regards to what God's word tells us about Jesus and his thoughts about human nature, let's look at another example. Jesus also said this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Wow. He said, you're evil, but you know how to do good. You know when Jesus said that, when he called them evil, do you know who he was speaking to? This will surprise you. Do you know who he was speaking to? He was speaking to the 12. You know the context, the disciples had asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. They said, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And so he began to teach them and he taught them what we call the Lord's Prayer. You know it. John chapter 11. And he taught them the Lord's Prayer and after he taught them how to pray, he said this. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask you? You know, the world wants the humanistic view. Many in the church want to hear a humanistic gospel. That humanistic view to say that human beings are basically good, you know, and from time to time they do bad things. But I, I mean, we just see here this morning, th that is opposed to what Jesus said about mankind and what Jesus said about the human nature, which is your generation is evil, but you know how to do good things. And you know the fact is, you know this, is if you walk for Jesus uh, any, any, with any sense of time, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you realize, man, I'm a mess inside. There is wickedness inside of me. There's evil in this heart. And the more you realize how, how bad you are, the more you're just thankful that Jesus stepped in and saved you out of the midst of, midst of your mess. You know, if you're thinking, you know, I don't know, Matt, you're, you're like pushing it. Let me remind you of another story. Can I give you another one? How about the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and he said to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And when you first read that account in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus' answer seems to have nothing to do with the question. The question, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus answered him, he said this, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. I mean, now, kind of some of the fun that's happening behind the story we know is that, of course, the young man didn't realize that he was speaking to God. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God. But he also didn't realize that he had a messed up view of what it means to be good. And so Jesus took him to the law. Jesus said to him, if you would enter eternal life, then keep the commandments. And the young man said, all these I've kept. I've kept them all. What do I still lack? Now the truth is this. If he was keeping all the commandments, then he wasn't lacking anything. 
And the reality is, is that though he was sincere, he hadn't truly compared his life to the commandments. He hadn't truly compared his life to God's word. So Jesus helped him. Jesus said this to him. If you'd be perfect, go, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And Matthew 19 tells us that when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It's tragic. It's totally a tragic story. Whenever I read that, I'm like, man, what a tragic story. Because he loved his stuff more than he desired eternal life. And more tragic is that the gospels don't tell us what happened to that young guy. Not gonna be till we get to heaven till we find out, did it register? Did what Jesus say land in his heart? Did he get away and wrestle it to the ground? And so here's the thing, you know, when we call someone a good person, or when we think of ourselves as a good person, that that's a comparative term. Good compared to what? Well, what is the comparison for measuring goodness? Again, look at verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Paul goes on in his description of the human condition. He, he begins to cite more verses from the Old Testament. He says their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their, their mouth is full of curses and bitternesses and bitterness. I mean, not only do we fail to understand or seek God, but also with our mouths, we sin against him and the things that we say about other people. All, all these references in this section are from the Psalms. That we, and the things that we do with our mouth, the damage we do with our mouth. Our throats, our tongue, our lips, our mouths, full of cursing and bitterness. I mean, how would you like it if, you know, everything that you ever said about people was just uh, replayed, replayed in, a, in, a, in some sort of recording for everyone to hear. <laughs> Anybody want to go first this morning? <laughs> Not I. Me neither. None of us would want that. You know, there's a story of two women. They were, we were, they were talking on the bus, and one said to the other one, I don't like her, and from all I've said about her, I never will. <laughs> And, and, and it's, it's, it's funny because it's, it's true. We've all said stuff. James said this, no man can control the tongue. The, the tongue can set a forest ablaze. It, it's full of deadly poison, James said. So if you're saying, you know, wow, this is encouraging this morning on Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> You know, I'm not good and my tongue is full of poison. Um, you know, aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> but you know, you ever watch the shopping network, you know, and they're like, they're like selling something and it's like, it's awesome, $19.99. But wait, there's more. I'm gonna throw some more in for free. He goes on. Their feet, verse 15, are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. He begins to talk about the feet. He says the feet are swift to shed blood. Now it's interesting because the, the scripture tells us, the New Testament tells us, and it's in the Old Testament as well, that the feet are to be used to deliver good news. That our, that our feet are to be clothed with the gospel of peace. But the nature of man apart from Jesus is this, that the, that the feet that should be used for good news are feet that are sh swift to shed blood. Ruin, misery, mark man's way. Ruin and misery, mark man's direction. Mankind moves in a direction whereas to shed the blood of others and apart from Jesus does not know the way of peace. You know, it's interesting to think that just as God wants to use your feet, so does the devil. 
Sin wants to use your feet. It wants to take you to the wrong place. Psalm 1, walking in the counsel of the wicked. Standing in the way of sinners. With, with our feet, we sin. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Paul sums it up. With a quote from Psalm 36, verse 1, he says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the conclusion. No one fears God. When Paul tells us that, he's actually quoting David. David said that. Jesus said this, this, is, this generation is evil. It's like, man, you know, two of the great heroes, David and Paul, and Jesus, the Son of God. And so Paul, as he's writing here, virtually calls every part of man's body into guilt. His thinking, his understanding, his mouth, his feet, his eyes, they're filled with, with sin and rebellion against God. And the conclusion, Paul says, no one fears God. No one fears God. The fear of God. Where's the fear of God? You know, in so many ways, our generation has fashioned God into the idol of our own imaginations. Well, I thought grace was a license to sin. Well, I thought I was good. I, I thought the word of God was to teach me about my identity. I, I thought God had picked me for his team of favorites. And that the rules didn't apply to me. I thought God would overlook the falsehood in my life. God desires truth in the inner place. Jesus said this, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's, that's the God we should fear. And you can only really fear you know, have the fear of God when you have a real sense of sin, when you have a real sense of righteousness and the judgment to come. Well, I thought God is love. God is love. But in our generation, that's the most overpreached thing. You know, I look at our culture. You want to know the problem with our culture? There is no fear of God. We should tremble. When I read this, this scares me. This God scares me. Because stuff is out of order. I need it fixed. Where's the fear of God? But I'm a good person. <laughs> Compared to what? Compared to what? The person sitting next to you? Is that your measurement? <laughs> Is that the measurement? Yeah, that's right. You can give them an elbow. That's right. I'm good. What's the standard? Jesus is the standard. I mean, when we, when we use that terminology, we, we always want to compare. We always find a lesser version, you know. Jesus is the standard, and that should lead us to fear. Now, when I'm talking about fearing God, I'm not talking about phobias, I'm talking about being scared of heights and things like that. Scared of the dark. Those are fears that lead you to paralysis. Remember when you're a kid? Laying in bed, scared of the dark. You're like paralyzed by your fear. When we talk about fear of God, we're talking about a healthy fear of God that leads us to be careful. A healthy fear that says, I better order my steps before this holy God and watch Watch what I do. I better be aware of the danger when I come near this God. You know God is dangerous. <laughs> Whenever I think of the fear of God, I like always think of a chainsaw. I was over at George's there a few weeks back. Sean Gray and myself and our kids, we were cutting firewood. And I had George's big chainsaw with a 36-inch bar on it. And I'll tell you what. 
much as I use that tool, I fear that freaking thing. Because <laughs> it'll cut me to pieces, one wrong move. You know, wherever there is sin, what you will find lacking in your life is the fear of God. You know, when you think about it, man's condition is depressing. Man, Like this is like, it's like, when I think of, you know, how Paul describes here human thought and human direction and human speech and action. Is he's describing my falling short and your falling short? which is what the law is meant to do, and it just silences your mouth. It's like before this holy God whom I should fear, I have nothing to say, man. Remember Job, the end, when God comes and confronts him, and he says, I'm sorry I spoke out of turn. I should have been quiet before you. That's what Paul is doing here. He's silencing the mouth of human nature and he's saying you be accountable before God. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are, who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Therein lies the purpose of the law, to stop your mouth. To stop the running of your mouth. You know, sometimes in the presence of God, you just got to stop your mouth and be in awe. The law brings consciousness of our sin and, and what we need to truly grasp is that obedience to that law, like the rich young ruler, it's, it's never going to make you righteous before God. The law will not justify you. The law will only condemn you. It's straight edge. Straight edge of the law to show you how crooked you are. And we read this and it's like all of us. I have no defense for myself. I don't have one. I can't follow through with the demands of God's word. I know that I can't follow through and because he's a righteous judge, he's going to hold me accountable. And that's where this next verse is awesome. Verse 21. He says this, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This, this verse transitions us from talking about the judgment of God's law to the justification for those who are in Jesus Christ. But now. That's like you should underline those. You got your Bible? You circle those words. That's like a, a conjunction. It's, it's, it's standing in opposition. Something is coming in opposition to everything that he's just told us. There's a distinction. Paul is going to talk about a, a new work of God that is opposed to everything that he's precedingly said and opposed to those concepts. But now, he says, the righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed. The law can't save us, but, but God has revealed a righteousness that can save us. That righteousness is offered to us in Christ Jesus. Apart from the law, meaning that apart from our own earning, apart from our own deserving, apart from our own good works, this righteousness, it's not, it's not a supplement like vitamin C and D for the winter. This isn't a supplement. This isn't to add to your stuff. This is entirely opposed to your stuff. This is a full-on rescue from the outside. Not given to make up the slack where your, your righteousness falls short before God. This is a whole new way of salvation through Jesus Christ that the Old Testament prophets predicted would come. Verse 22, we're going to wrap right here. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ 
for all who believe. This righteousness doesn't come from the law. It comes from faith in a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. We, we don't earn righteousness through our faith. Rather, as we're going to see, we receive righteousness as a gift from God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I would say this to you this morning that you know belief in God is not the key to being right before him, justified before him. The scriptures actually say this, that the demons believe in him and they tremble at his name. Belief in him won't save you or justify you. When we talk about this God that we're talking about, this holy God, what Paul is saying here is that you have to personally be linked to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not belief in God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. That's what makes us righteous. And you know, this morning, I, I, I just want to call you to do something this week, okay? I just felt like as I was preparing, like the Lord just wanted me to leave this hanging. Like I almost didn't even want to read verse 21 and 22. I wanted you to feel the weight of the law. To feel it and then to challenge you to do this this week. Go home and pour over the rest of chapter three. Get up and have your breakfast every day this week and read the rest of chapter three. And ask the Lord this. What is this righteousness that's been revealed? Ask him to show you. Say, God, I need you to show me this righteousness that's, I don't understand this. Show me the righteousness that's been revealed. And then you just pour over Romans 3 all this week. Will you do that? Can I leave you that with that challenge right there? And then I'm not lifting any more off. That's it, right there. Go figure it out for yourselves. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Worship team, come on up here.